welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sunderland and Talking Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Sheffield. The current coronavirus pandemic is affecting all of our societies and changing how we live our lives. With movement both within and across borders restricted for everyone, how are migrants and refugees affected? At Europe's border, a humanitarian crisis was already developing with inadequate housing for asylum seekers and great difficulty to access protection. Has the health crisis made Europe more or less restrictive towards migrants and refugees? Are people on the move particularly vulnerable to the health crisis? And what might the long-term impact of the pandemic be on Europe's policy towards migrants and refugees? With me to discuss these issues and more is Catherine Woolard, Secretary-General of the European Council on Refugees and Exiles, or ECRA, which is a pan-European alliance of 150 NGOs in 40 countries, protecting and advancing the rights of refugees, asylum seekers and displaced persons. I started by asking Catherine Woolard what the specific vulnerabilities are for migrants and refugees along the border in relation to COVID-19. Thank you. Yes, I, I think in relation to the health crisis, there are various uh, specific vulnerabilities that people on the move face, even before we get to the situation of the EU's own border. Um, many people who are forcibly displaced are in inadequate housing. Uh, so they may be in camps or they may be in informal settlements and they may be in situations of uh, overcrowding. Uh, they may also have limited access to health services. The second issue we would highlight is border closures. Uh, so the fact that now so many borders are closed and UNHCR has noted that of the 160 or so countries that have put in place some border restriction, there are 57 of those which don't have any kind of exemption for people seeking protection. So most obviously people who are fleeing from persecution, repression or conflict aren't able to cross borders to seek protection. We would also add that vulnerability is created through hostile measures which are being justified by the virus, even though they may be measures that were already planned before this health emergency developed. And we would add that in Europe, the vulnerable situation of many people on the move results from the deliberate policy choices. So in the last three to four years, ECRE has documented a large increase in the use of detention and a, a large increase in destitution of people on the move, refugees, other migrants. And these situations of detention and destitution, including at the EU's borders, both inside and outside the borders, mean that people on the move are, are more vulnerable in the sense that they're more likely to contract the virus and they're more likely to have seri a, a serious experience or serious symptoms uh, should they contract it. And most obviously the situation in Greece uh, is something that, that can be highlighted in this regard, but there are many other places in Europe where policies have led to detention and destitution, therefore putting people at greater risk of contracting the virus. And is, are there any measures taken to um, to protect migrants and refugees? Um, so in general, both in general and specifically people in risk groups. And is there anything that you know the migrants themselves are asking for? So we've documented 
a whole series of responses to the coronavirus which have an impact on asylum and migration across Europe. This is a very changeable and unpredictable situation and indeed from day to day we identify new changes in policy practice even in the legal framework that result from government responses to the virus. When it comes to measures to protect people, to pr protect people on the move, be they asylum seekers, people with established uh, status, or, or other people, for instance, those in irregular situations, um, most governments in Europe have introduced some measures which aim to, uh, at protecting people. These include, for instance, quarantine for those crossing borders. They include establishing social distancing and hygiene measures within reception centres uh, and also detention centres. They include certain improvements in reception standards and, and they include measures such as identifying and then separating vulnerable people uh, who are in a reception setting. So those kind of measures are being put in place, um, as well as measures that are uh, more restrictive, let's say. Yeah, thank you. And so the EU was already in somewhat of a, we might call a crisis, a border crisis before the coronavirus outbreak. Would you say that the health situation has primarily led to further restrictions, uh, such as on rights and movements, or to increased protections of the rights and uh, of rights of migrants and refugees? There have certainly been a number of negative measures that have been introduced by European states in response to the virus, and measures that have a negative impact on people on the move. What I think is more surprising is that we've also noted uh, a small number of positive measures being introduced uh, and that we didn't necessarily expect. On the negative side, I would say uh, main concerns are about what's happening at borders. So the prevention of um, movement across borders and particularly where countries are not introducing exemptions for people seeking protection. So both the uh, UNHCR and the European Commission in the guidance that it issued last week have strongly called for an exemption to any kind of border restriction for specifically for people seeking protection so that they can still access protection during this situation uh, of emergency. And um, we've also seen problems at the level of access to asylum. So the in some cases there's e even been de facto a suspension of the asylum procedure. This we've noted in countries such as Cyprus, Greece, the Netherlands, uh, for a certain period in Belgium, although this has now been lifted. Um, there are uh, concerns about the situation in France uh, as well. And those are situations where people are not being able to present uh, asylum claims. There are also, in a greater number of member states, the asylum authorities have switched to other mechanisms for accepting asylum uh, requests. And those might be online mechanisms, telephone uh, procedures, um, moving away from in-person uh, asylum claim lodging and also moving away from uh, in-person interviewing and other stages in the asylum uh, 
separate procedure. In those cases, it's not yet clear how well those kind of substitute measures are working in practice. Uh, but our concern is that that is uh, limiting and can only inevitably uh, limit uh, access to asylum. Um, other negative m measures that we've noted are ones that are affecting more widely the situation of the rule of law, for instance. Um, and, and a case that's been very much highlighted is Hungary, where the state of emergency introduced um, has been expanded to a point that power is very much concentrated in the hands of the Prime Minister. There was also an attempt, uh, there's been attempts uh, in Poland to introduce measures that are re restrictive, that undermine democracy. And we also saw an attempt which uh, fortunately appears to have been thwarted in Slovenia, where the government tried to use the situation of the virus to restrict the activities of NGOs um, with a particular focus on the NGOs that are supporting asylum seekers and refugees. Um, we uh, were asked by our members in Slovenia to write to the government uh, explaining that these measures were not necessary. They were measures that had previously been discussed by the government. So what we see in a situation like that is um, a government trying to use this exceptional health emergency to introduce measures that were already uh, planned or already um, that, that, uh, on the agenda of certain political parties. And, and I would like to highlight above all the situation in Greece, where we saw in early March, before the situation with the coronavirus had become a, a widespread emergency, Greece introduced a number of problematic measures in response to the arrivals of people from Turkey at its land border. And that included a suspension of the asylum procedure. That suspension of the asylum procedure has now been extended up until mid-May, and the government is now using the virus as the justification for that suspension of the asylum procedure even though they'd already received a warning from the European Commission that this was probably unlawful, um, and even though we and others, including Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, don't see any health-based reason why the asylum procedures should be suspended. Um, so th that is on the, the, let's say, the negative side. Um, as I mentioned, we were surprised to see a, a small number of more positive measures being introduced in response to the virus. Um, there I would note an easing of detention regimes. Um, we've seen over 10 European countries that have released from detention certain categories of people. Um, uh, the most notable, or the, the first of those was in Spain, where people who have received a return deportation decision, but who can't actually be returned, were in a situation of de facto detention. And those people have now been released. But in a number of other member states, people who in our view shouldn't have been in detention because there's no suggestion of any kind of criminal activity were being held in detention but have now been uh, released with an easing of detention uh, regimes. Um, secondly, we've seen some, uh, albeit small, but still interesting moves towards regularization. 
that is granting of some kind of status to people who were otherwise uh, in a situation where they lacked documentation or lacked uh, a status such as the right to reside. So there the case of Portugal has been noted where people who are waiting for asylum decisions have been granted a status that allows them to access healthcare. Um, there have been other moves, for instance, in Luxembourg, where there's been a general uh, extension of uh, the status rights that people have uh, pending decisions. More radically, there have been proposals for very large-scale regularisation, and most notably, the minister responsible for employment issues in Italy has proposed a regularization of 600,000 people, um, which is the current undocumented population in Italy. Um, and that is really to deal with the uh, absence of workers that Italy is facing, and particularly uh, in relation to the agricultural sector where Italy relies on uh, a, a sort of migrant workforce and those people are not able to reach Italy this year. At the same time, it has this pool of people, uh, many of whom want to work, many of whom work in situations uh, of irregularity, whether at risk of uh, exploitation, which is very well documented. Um, but but granting them a, an, a status, a right to reside that is attached to employment rights um, would be an extremely progressive measure. At least it was proposed. Um, and let's see if any of those measures under discussion are accepted. The final area of positive measures that we've identified is um, an expansion in the right to work of certain categories of people that didn't previously benefit from that. So for instance, here in Belgium, uh, asylum seekers are now granted the right to work from the time that they submit their asylum application. Um, and that constitutes an expansion of their right to work. And we've seen other well-publicized measures such as in France and Italy, where highly skilled refugees are being brought into the workforce, for instance, within the medical profession. Um, and that is based on a certain uh, loosening or more um, a greater openness to the assessment of qualifications and training that was carried out outside the EU. Um, and th this is a long-standing difficulty for refugees in Europe, which is receiving accreditation for the skills that they bring when they trained or received qualifications from universities or training establishments outside Europe. Um, and in effect, many, many refugees uh, are in an, a very frustrating situation where they can't use their skills uh, because they're awaiting some form of recognition of their certification. Um, and that's been accelerated and speeded up by the crisis. Um, our main point would be to consolidate some of these positive measures and to make them permanent, because in many cases they're pragmatic, sensible measures that should have happened before this emergency. On the other hand, we would strongly argue for a rolling back of some of these negative measures. In many cases, they're not even justified during a health emergency, and they're certainly not justifiable at a situation um, of in a situation of. Uh, 
uh, normality. Mm. I'll, I'll just add um, a, a quick follow-up question there. Yeah. I think that's really interesting how uh, perhaps there's been a slightly changing attitude to migrant workers and skill and different skill levels. Um, but I was also just wondering about there might be certain migrants or categories of migrants or refugees who, who have a right to reside in a country but where this is attached to some form of conditionality, such as um, having a, an income, being able to support yourself or some sort of integration um, sort of measures. And I wonder if, because it might be difficult to live up to those conditions now, given the health crisis, if there are any measures in countries to sort of relax those uh, conditions on um, uh, achieving perhaps permanent residency or, or any those sort of measure to just to acknowledge that it might be difficult to actually live up to certain conditions uh, for um, for residency and I, I think that that's a very interesting question we haven't so far seen changes that relate to let's say longer term solutions for people on the move um, so for instance the kind of thing that you're talking about there where we might see a certain relaxing of the requirements for naturalization or for granting of long-term uh, permanent residence um, permits for instance um, what we've seen is a, a, a sort of loosening of the conditions that are required um, for short-term uh, stability and security, for instance. Um, so, for instance, requirements when in a situation of alternative, uh, somebody benefiting from an alternative to detention, which requires a, a daily check-in at a reception centre or certain kinds of conditional um, condi conditions attached to uh, a, a, a regime uh, to avoid detention or, or, or to, to have a slightly more reasonable uh, circumstance. In those cases, we have seen um, a loosening of requirements. Um, we've also seen things, um, some measures that are... Um, where, where, where you have a temporary suspension... Uh, of something that would be problematic. So, for instance, um, the Dublin regulation, where people who would otherwise have been transferred on the basis of Dublin uh, back to the member state where they first arrived or, or where there's a first uh, indication that, uh, of their presence, who are now in a situation where those transfers are not taking place, um, and they don't have to go through the usual processes to try to uh, stop the suspension or to um, to suspend that that uh, decision while they're in an appeals process. So it, I think at the level of sort of short-term immediate uh, situations, there there are changes. Um, what we would hope is. Uh, as I say, to somehow try to turn some of these changes into more permanent um, changes or, or permanent changes to legal framework. And that would involve the kind of things that you mentioned, um, a general move away from some of the restrictive conditions that people face. So I think one of the things this uh, crisis is exposing is the extent to which Europe is dependent on migrant labour. 
as we knew. Um, and one of the things we've argued for is that, um, of course, refugees arriving in Europe are entitled to protection. That's not a question. It's not dependent on what they bring. Um, it certainly should never be conditional on their integration prospects, which has been a debate in the reform of the common European asylum system, which is particularly problematic with some member states trying to condition international protection um, on, on something like integration prospects. Um, nonetheless, We've said at the same time, there is an opportunity to turn this into a win-win where people arriving to seek protection should, could and should be granted the right to work as soon as possible because that means that they're less dependent on social assistance and it's what many of them desperately want. Um, and at the same time, it, it's something that Europe uh, very much needs because of demographic changes. And, and this crisis has really brought that to the fore. And it's really demonstrated some of the arguments that we and, and many others have made about the economic impact of not um, accepting and then properly integrating through provision of rights the populations um, that are ar arriving in Europe, including those seeking protection. So we may then be able to mount the political arguments that make it easier to find long-term solutions. Um, or at very least reverse some of the negative trends to um, limit the duration of people's rights. Um, so to give you an example, um, we've seen even on something like resettlement of recognized referee, uh, re refugees into Europe, certain member states have, have put a time limit on the residency rights that a resettled refugee will benefit from. Um, uh, uh, as in Austria, for instance, where uh, that has become now for most categories three years. But, but this is a very short period of time when somebody is likely to be displaced for an average of 16 to 18 years as we know from studying global displacement. And um, so that creates a very strong sense of insecurity. Um, similarly, we've monitored, uh, identified the very uh, limited residency, uh, duration of residency rights attached to other forms of protection status, um, including subsidiary protection, um, which is not meant to be an inferior status compared to refugee status. And, and all of those measures, uh, those restrictive measures or those changes were put in place to supposedly reduce the pull factor based on the idea that people are coming to Europe because of their benefits uh, or because of what they might, might um, gain there. Whereas we know that it's all about push factors and there's no evidence that pull factors even exist. Um, so the, um, some of those really unnecessary and, and punitive measures and, and measures that create insecurity and also damage integration prospects. I think we have a, a good moment now to, um, to try and push against them. All of that said, um, let, let's not be naive about the fact that this crisis is primarily having a very negative impact on people on the move. Um, and that is because it exacerbates the, the problems with access to territory.
which really is the key problem that we've seen in Europe, is um, denial of access at borders. And that, of course, is continuing. Um, but we also see a number of um, impacts that, as yet, we don't know. Um, for instance, the uh, number of people on the move who are in fragile work situations, who've lost their income as a result of this crisis, um, in some cases, maybe in the informal economy, so they can't benefit from the kind of programs for furloughed workers. Um, and we're seeing a very, very dramatic decline in remittance uh, income, uh, for instance, remittance revenues going into uh, very fragile countries where there's already serious displacement problems. So there are things like that that uh, will be the medium and long-term impact. Um, and, and again, it's often displacement outside Europe uh, where these things are, are more notable. So there's been this transfer uh, of some unaccompanied children from the Greek islands, um, but, but not of everyone. Uh, and I wonder what you think is needed more um, and what about the children who are not unaccompanied, um, but, but who are still uh, obviously um, vulnerable? So I think the situation in, in Greece, as we know, is an ongoing humanitarian emergency and, and also a shameful situation that results, again, from deliberate policy choices. And in this case, uh, of course, the EU-Turkey deal. Uh, intrinsic to that deal is the idea of containment of people on the Greek islands. It's already been clear for a number of years that returning those people to Turkey is not possible. Um, we've argued from the beginning that it is also not ethical and not legal, um, but it just hasn't been happening. So even before the coronavirus emergency, uh, ECRE and many, many others, including all of our members in Greece, had been campaigning uh, to have people moved off the islands and to end this policy of containment uh, on the Greek islands uh, because of the humanitarian emergency there. Um, now that the virus uh, is spreading in Greece, as in everywhere else, it's become even more important to evacuate the islands. Um, and the most vulnerable people are being evacuated to, uh, at very least, they're being moved out of the camps and informal settlements around the camps into other accommodation on the islands or onto the mainland um, and we urge that to continue and the other issue is this very um, important plan to relocate 1,600 unaccompanied children this was already agreed before the health emergency and it was facilitated by the European Commission um, we've strongly praised Luxembourg and Germany, who have both started to relocate the children, with Luxembourg being the first country. And the foreign minister of Luxembourg, uh, Jean Asselburn, uh, is, um, I, I think, one of the, the politicians who's been most progressive and positive in trying to uh, ensure uh, the recognition of refugee rights in Europe in recent years. Um, and in addition, at the beginning, there were seven other countries who joined this agreement to relocate. So we would hope right now that those seven 
so Luxembourg and Germany plus the other five, um, will all continue as soon as they can, given the health situation, um, to relocate the children that they've pledged to uh, take. The good news is that another four member states have now signed up. Um, so now we're talking about 11 countries that are part of this agreement um, and, and member states and associated countries because one of them is Switzerland. Um, so um, that, that should continue. Um, uh, what we would add to that is this is the kind of thing we want to see the European Commission doing trying to put in place relocation plans that help mitigate uh, the humanitarian problems within Europe and the negative effects of the Dublin regulation, the allocation system within Europe. Um, so it's also something positive in that sense, because uh, rather than the Commission focusing all its resources on return or on implementing the EU-Turkey deal in the sense of trying to get people back to Turkey, um, it is looking at relocating in the other direction. And, and we hope that the new Commissioner, um, Ilva Johansson, will continue with this kind of approach. Um, that said, the needs are still huge. And um, in Greece now, there are 120,000 people. Um, the access to the uh, asylum uh, procedure is suspended. Even for those who've made asylum applications, it's taking up to three years to get an interview. So the situation is really very bleak. Um, a lot of people are living in uh, situations of destitution, homeless, uh, in inadequate informal uh, accommodation. Um, amongst them are a, a total of, uh, according to our figures, around 5,200 unaccompanied children. And that includes the 1,600 who will be relocated. So our recommendation would be to expand the relocation program. Um, initially, and for political reasons, uh, widen the group of children that can be included. Uh, but it should go beyond children to be a relocation program for many of the people uh, in Greece. Um, in addition to the unaccompanied children, of the people on the Greek islands, um, more than 33% are children. So it's a population of people seeking protection. The vast majority are refugees or are likely to be awarded some kind of protection status um, if they ever get access to a proper process. Um, but about a third uh, are children. And some of those unaccompanied, some of those with families who are also in situations of uh, high risk. So all of those children and indeed many of those adults are at risk of exploitation. And uh, it's not just a risk. I mean, they're in situations where they're being exploited on a daily basis. So um, I, I think all the, the usual calls for changing strategy so that uh, European policy is not based on containing people in Greece or, or containing people beyond Greece in Turkey, where there are also uh, a, a huge number of problematic um, developments and a situation where people are not safe. 
um, but looking instead at uh, a broader European asylum policy, making asylum work, um, reforming the re relocation, um, excuse me, the allocation system, um, and uh, then uh, in the short term, putting in place solidarity measures that uh, alleviate the situa situation of humanitarian emergency. Thank you, that's, that's really informative. Is, is there anything you want to add? So I would say, if we're looking at the positive and negative impacts of this health crisis on asylum and migration policy, up until now, it's been quite interesting that the anti-migration extremist parties, uh, those parties and politicians sometimes called populists, um, have not really been able to benefit from what's going on. And they, uh, early on uh, in the crisis, um, they tried to exploit what was happening um, by turning it into a continuation of their anti-migration politics, um, putting out very nasty rhetoric, and they haven't had any traction at all. And the exception to that uh, is Hungary, because those parties, or that party, a Fidesz, a party that was originally a mainstream centre-right party but has become an extremist party, um, they are the government, they are the state. So um, it's always an outlier and they have managed to exploit the situation even though there is a backlash against what they're doing. If we look at other countries, those parties have been marginalised um, during this crisis and I would say that that is something that should be considered positive and it's something that I think probably stems from people's need to have trustworthy, reliable and cool-headed leaders during a, a time of emergency. Um, that said, these parties and these leaders won't be gone forever. And for all of us, one of the things uh, we have to be very, very wary about is the potential for these parties to return and to exploit the situation and to, to return to some of their anti-refugee, anti-migration uh, rhetoric policies um, and, and uh, arguments when we emerge from the immediate emergency, but enter into a situation where um, people in Europe are living in economic insecurity with uh, potential increased unemployment, which are the likely consequences of this virus. And I think at that point, both uh, mainstream political parties, but also civil society needs to be ready and preparing now uh, to combat a potential uh, attempt to, um, to, to return and to I exploit uh, um, the, the conditions after uh, the uh, health part is uh, a bit more under control. ECRA's just published an information sheet on COVID-19 measures related to asylum and migration across Europe, which you can access via their website ECRA.org, as well as through the link in this podcast description and on our Twitter at TalkingMeet. That was all for this time. Thank you very much for listening.